alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brothers and sisters. We begin, uh, as always, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Welcome, everyone, to episode 24 of the Convo podcast, which is on a bit of a different topic this time, inshallah. Our last couple of topics were very heavy, deeply political topics, perhaps spurred, spurred on by the events of the day. We're talking about Afghanistan. We're talking about Pakistan's policy on Afghanistan, the war on terror. Very heavy topics. We thought we'd move away from that, but to a, a very important and very um, interesting topic nonetheless. Um, we were very excited about this topic because of the guests who were so... Um, we were uh, quite happy and quite pleased and honoured that our esteemed guests could join us. Um, and uh, inshallah, my co-host will introduce them shortly. But this podcast is on the concept of the idea of studying... Uh, sacred knowledge, studying the deen and traveling for that purpose. So studying deen, studying Islam overseas, which both of our guests have had the honor of doing. Um, so what we want to do is basically learn from their experiences, learn a little bit about what kind of challenges they faced and maybe pick their brains a little bit on some interesting questions on that topic. So over to you, Hamza, if you can introduce our, our guests for tonight and then we can get started, inshallah. You're on mute, by the way. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much, Sufyan. Uh, okay, so we've got two very esteemed uh, guests with us today who uh, you may well know from uh, their activity within the community. So we've got Sheikh Jamaluddin Al-Kiki, who recently graduated from the Islamic University of Medina. Uh, he's also attained multiple ijazat in hifz and, uh, of the Qur'an, according to Hafs and Asim. He holds a Bachelor of Psychology with honours and is currently pursuing a Master's of Teaching. And alongside him, we have Sheikh Ikramullah Ahmed, who studied at Darul Uloom, Victoria, and he completed a Bachelor of Islamic Revealed Knowledge and Heritage with honours and a major in Quran Sunnah at the International Islamic University of Malaysia. He's also, uh, has, he also has a Master's in Classical Arabic and is currently a PhD candidate in Islamic Studies at Charles Sturt University, uh, and that PhD is on moon sighting. So a nice controversial topic there. Uh, he's currently a Hibs instructor. Uh, he also teaches advanced Arabic grammar and is an assistant imam. So we have two fantastic guests with us today. Uh, Jazakallah khair. Thank you both very much for um, coming onto our program. We are delighted to have you guys. And inshallah, we really do hope that uh, the discussions today uh, can shed light on this topic of uh, studying, going overseas, going abroad for the purposes of knowledge, inshallah. Okay, so I might take it off, uh, take it away, sorry, with uh, the first question. <laughs> the first question there on your journey, so your respective journeys. Um, we wanted to start off by just having a conversation around, okay, we know you are two people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed with the opportunity of studying Islam overseas. Um, perhaps if you can just tell us a little bit about that. Um, when, where, how did it come about? What was the experience like? A couple of minutes, inshallah, if uh, Sheikh Ikram, if we can start with yourself. I think uh, my journey starts from the very beginning, uh, from my early childhood. Um, it certainly starts uh, from uh, two dedicated, very um, dedicated parents who went above and beyond uh, to ensure that. Um, uh, their children had uh, the best of both worlds uh, in terms of both um, Islamic knowledge and also secular knowledge. Um, 
and so uh, my parents, you know, they uh, sacrificed a lot in order to um, uh, raise us with an Islamic upbringing in the West, with a focus on uh, retaining the Arabic language uh, and also um, memorizing the Quran and being connected to the Quran. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them immensely um, for all their sacrifices. Um, and, and everything I am today really is a, a fruition of those efforts, alhamdulillah. Um, alhamdulillah, I was able... Um, with their, with their help, of course, after the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to memorize the Qur'an at the age of 14. Um, and afterwards, I'll, I was able to attend many Qur'an competitions which uh, refined my um, my memorization of the Qur'an. Uh, in terms of Arabic, um, the, my, my father is Egyptian, you know, so he uh, would speak to us in Arabic uh, from a very young age, make sure that um, I'd speak Arabic uh, with my siblings, even though eventually, you know, just the English would take over because of um, just, you know, the, the social scene yeah. at school and social you know, influences about, they take over. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so also along with that, you know, just watching Arabic cartoons that had Islamic themes, um, attending Arabic chutbahs at the mosque and also Arabic uh, lessons. Um, I also attended um, Muslim schools uh, during my um, primary and secondary um, education. So. Uh, with primary school, I, t- I attended a Nuri Muslim school, so they actually had Arabic classes um, throughout my years over there. Uh, there was a bit in Malik Fad, but not so much. Uh, I, I attended Malik Fad for my secondary education. Hmm. Um, and then afterwards, uh, when doing my psychology degree at the University of Sydney, um, I was able to pick up 36 uh, credit points worth of electives uh, in advanced Arabic. So that was an opportunity for me to um, just, you know, practice Arabic, uh, translating uh, from English to Arabic and vice versa. Um, so alhamdulillah, that, that gave me a, you know, very decent, um, ex, you know, exposure to Arabic. Yep. And, and to just time, refine those skills that you picked up over the Exactly, years. yeah, just, yep. you know, um, refining my uh, ability to use the language. And then by the time I was accepted, alhamdulillah, in, uh, into the University of Medina, um, my Arabic was such that uh, I didn't actually need to go through the two years of Arabic that most mm. Western students have to go through. Um, I was able to skip right through to the four-year degree. Um, so um, I started, uh, you know, immediately into you know, the, the first year of uh, my Sharia degree. Um, and, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's either you uh, swim or sink uh, in the degree. So if you don't have the literacy requirements, uh, it's very easy to sink. Um, you're, you're studying Nahu through uh, the text of Sharh ibn Aqil, ala al-Fiyat bin Malik, which is um, quite an, uh, an advanced text, relatively speaking, uh, in Nahu. Um, if you don't have a basic grasp for the language, you just cannot... Uh, cope with that. Even yeah. with uh, the texts of Fiqh and Usul, uh, you know, I was studying comparative, uh, comparatively um, uh, the different madhahib and also other opinions beyond the madhahib uh, through the text of Bidat uh, al-Mujtahid by Ibn Rushd. Yeah. Um, and for Usul, there's the text of Rodot uh, al by Ibn Qudama. So these are very advanced classical texts which uh, require a, a very decent literacy in Arabic. Um, and, and if you don't have those literacy requirements, uh, you'd probably sink. Um, so alhamdulillah, yani, um, uh, yeah, uh, I guess. Uh, quite quite the, the journey, mashallah. Um, it's really, um, it's quite extensive, mashallah. It's taken you around places. Um, what about yourself, uh, Sheikh Ikram? What about your own personal journey? Where's that taken you? Yeah, very similar to Sheikh Jamal, I started my 
seeking of Islamic knowledge at a very young age. Um, I became a Hafiz um, at a young age as well. But by the time I was 14, um, I was looking for sort of some sort of courses in Islamic studies within Sydney uh, locally. And I was obviously inspired by my father. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier when your father himself is a sheikh yeah. and you grew up in an Islamic environment. I went to AICS. Back then, it was called King Abdulaziz College of Sydney. So it was a very good um, Islamic environment around us. But unfortunately, at that time, there was nothing in Sydney, um, not even a short Sharia course or anything like that. And the closest one that we found was in Melbourne. And obviously, at a very young age, at the age of 14, my parents were reluctant to send me abroad as well. Was, this, so- was this back in the 70s, was it? <laughs> no, 50s. No. <laughs> uh, looking at um, late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. So um, yeah, I'm not that old. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the closest we found was in Melbourne, uh, Darwin yeah. College of Victoria. They offered a full six-year Sharia course or an island course, but I personally did not want to go by myself. So alhamdulillah, my dad, he was able to convince a couple of other close friends of mine, um, their parents. So alhamdulillah, we formed a group of three and we all agreed to go together and embark on this sacred journey. So I was there for six years, alhamdulillah, finished the alim course in which we studied, you know, the traditional uh, method of seeking knowledge. Start with Arabic, fiqh, usul, fiqh, hadith, and then we finished with the siha sitta. Um, And then after that, I obviously, you know, academically, it's not enough. You know, you have, you become a sheikh, you become an alim, but in order for you to excel, you need a degree, you know, especially if you want to end up doing master's or a PhD. And unfortunately, Darulam College of Victoria, they weren't able to give us anything of that sort. It was just a shahada, it was just a basic certificate. Yeah. So then I applied to go to the International Islamic University of Malaysia, where I studied a bachelor's of Islamic studies, majoring in Quran and Sunnah with um, another local sheikh, Abdullah Hakim, and we were both there together, alhamdulillah. Um, And to be honest, most of the topics and the subjects which I studied at the university, I had already covered in Malaysia. Uh, Sorry, in Melbourne. In Melbourne. In fact, what I studied in Melbourne was um, more intense and more detailed. So alhamdulillah, I was able to fly through um, the bachelors. And then after that, I returned back to Australia, started teaching Arabic at Western Grammar School, where I was joined by our host, Mohammed Sufyan. But I felt that, you know, in terms of Arabic, I, I wasn't content, you know, even though I'd studied Arabic for 10 years before that, but I felt I needed to learn more. Um, so that's where I was introduced to Charles State University. They were doing a Master's of Classical Arabic. So alhamdulillah, I did that for two years. And, um, and I thought, okay, I think 12 years is enough. But then, you know, my father's like, you know, you've come this far, push for a PhD. Um, then we started looking at various topics. And obviously him being the founder of Moonsighting Australia. And some, it's something, you know, it's a very hot topic. Um, and it's something which I was brought up with. I uh, thought, you know what, it's it's a good topic to start off with. Alhamdulillah, I'm half, well, I wouldn't say halfway, probably a year and a half through that. I've got a few more years to go. So, yeah, so far I'm still a talib al-ilm, still a student of knowledge. Alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. That's, that's quite, uh, it's quite a journey, like Kamsa said, uh, for both of you. Um, and, you know, just looking at that issue, sort of like we were talking about this earlier about the notion of studying abroad, it kind of leads into our second question because you were saying, Sheikh Ikram, that so much of what you learned um, in Malaysia, you already had uh, a grounding for in your Darul Alum studies in Victoria. Yep. My question is then, this is for both of you, um, 
did you feel that having having studied locally and having studied abroad, do you feel that it's necessary to be able to um, even let's say master, let's put that, let's put the um, let's put the bar high, uh, and you know you, you mentioned that things weren't like this back in the uh, late nineties and early two thousands when you did this, but you know, things have changed in twenty years. Would you say that it's essential still today to go abroad if you want to embark on sacred learning? So let me just add something to the question there, um, especially with the online mediums available, especially when um, you've got some of the prestigious universities now offering their effectively full course online. Do you really need to head abroad or can you just do it all from home? Yeah, look, that's um, a tough one. Uh, oh, sorry, Sheikh, go for it. Um, okay, uh, if you want to go ahead. Sure. No, 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 go, go, please. All right. Um, so I guess um, before sort of answering it directly, I think um, one needs to distinguish between uh, knowledge which is fadl uh, and knowledge which is fadl Um I think most uh, colleges available locally are geared towards equipping the average Muslim with the essentials, you know, so um, basics of aqidah, basics of um, uh, individual fit, you know, the fit of tahara, the fit of uh, ibadat in general, um, perhaps even uh, some mu'amalat. Um, so it's it's really geared uh, to, you know, just fulfilling the basics. Uh, whereas overseas, yeah, with, with, with um, overseas courses, uh, it's more about analysing the classical literature uh, of scholars, uh, especially also analysing, you know, the uh, Qur'an and Sunnah uh, in terms of usul, in terms of uh, lugha and qawaid and so forth. So um, I think uh, when, whenever we're talking about overseas degrees, uh, it's more about uh, connecting to the sources, the traditional sources of the of the Dian. Um and yes, uh, as as uh, indicated, yeah, like many uh, universities are now offering uh, online avenues, especially now due to COVID, things have gone online. Um, so um, yes, uh, it's it's an alternative to having to go overseas. Um, in, in fact, I did my final uh, year of my degree online. Uh, I mean, all of uh, Saudi. Uh, basically went online uh, due to COVID. Um, but the, the issue is, you know, just having the dedication. So, so being overseas uh, enabled me to dedicate myself entirely just to seeking knowledge. It was literally eat, sleep, uh, pray and study. Um, yep. And yeah, no, no distractions, no, no other commitments whatsoever. routine for that particular purpose and that's yeah. your everything. Yeah, exactly. And sure enough, you know, you can do the, I mean, they do offer their degree online at the moment, um, but you basically have to set aside 20 hours of your week uh, to this degree. It's, it's a full-time degree. So, how, did, um, how did you manage that, like with the COVID situation, when you were doing it online from home, presumably, um, yeah. did you find that that was as effective as you being there or what kind of differences or were you perhaps dedicated enough to see it through and give it those hours that were required? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, being in Medina, alhamdulillah, it's, that's that's obviously um, has its own unique blessing. But I, I found it, you know, uh, immensely convenient to just do it from the comfort of one's home without having to go halfway across the, across the world to attend the class. Um, the information is the same. Obviously, um, to some extent, you know, it's just uh, there's a bit of a distance, you know, um, yeah. when interacting through an artificial medium. Um, but, yeah, the, the knowledge is a knowledge, you know, it's it's the same information. Um and, uh, yeah, th there was some flexibility. I, I did enjoy flexibility doing it from home uh, without having to uh, feel the homesickness of being overseas. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 
at the same time, you know, I felt a bit robbed of you know a year of, of spending <laughs> you know in the you know uh, some time in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's uh, city, of course, uh, in the vicinity of, in the vicinity of the mosque and, and so forth, yeah. and attending the Haram every day. But, when they opened you know, up, the you should ask for that year back. Inshallah, I mean, through Umrah, I mean, I'd love to, um, you know, hopefully visit sometime soon through Umrah. I actually still have books um, left over over there that I still have to collect. Well, you've got a reason to go back now. Well, obviously, um, there's always reason to go there, but even well, more reason. Um, hopefully, that's not the primary one, but, um, you know, that it's sincerely for Umrah and so forth. Yeah. Um, Ikram, how do you feel about that in terms of traveling abroad versus studying locally? You've got a mix of both. Yeah, of- especially because you made that incredibly long journey to Melbourne um, and studied there. So it's you know, not quite Medina, but it starts with the same letter. So good enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I completely agree with what Sheikh Jabal was uh, mentioning earlier. Uh, but from my personal experience, because I did study in Australia and abroad, um, although in both instances I was... Uh, the bottom line is I was away from my family. I was in a boarding environment. And I think that's where the the difference was because I did my master's and PhD. In, I'm still doing my PhD in Australia with my family. Uh, yeah. But I, from a personal uh, point of view, I felt that you know I was a, I was able to give more time to my studies, um, not just because of the age factor and because you know I was working and whatnot. But I feel that when you leave your house, um, you know, to seek knowledge, um, I, I felt that. You know, being in an environment, particularly in Melbourne, where it was a very traditional environment of um, like a, a madrasa style, where we sit on the floor in the masjid upstairs, our desks are on the floor, our teacher comes, sits on the floor, we make a little halaqa, a circle, and he has, you know, the full big kitab in front of them. Um, that sort of knowledge was far more beneficial than um, what I studied in Malaysia, although it was essentially the same thing. In fact, some of the books were identical. The only difference was, you know, because it's a university, it's more advanced. These books were then put on PowerPoint. Um, they were taught in, you know, a very different style, although the knowledge, as Sheikh Jamal was mentioning, it's the same whether you do it online, whether you do it in person. And I think it comes to a personal preference. Um, some people may enjoy learning from the comfort of their home. Some people enjoy learning True. online. Uh, whereas for me, I personally found it, I'm finding it very difficult to you know, complete my PhD now because I feel like I'm more lazy. Whereas, um, mm. you know, 10 years ago when I was in a madrasa style, or even in Malaysia, um, I was married in Malaysia and I had two kids as well. So the family issue, um, you know, it's the same as it is now. But I felt that I was able to give more um, back then because I was in an environment where I was with a teacher face-to-face one-on-one learning rather than, you know, doing a few courses on and seeing my lecturer once or twice a week, I'm not able to communicate with them as much. If I have a question, you know, I'll have to email them, wait for them to get back to me and so forth. So I think it is it is difficult. But then again, I, I'll put it down yeah. to a personal preference. I think that yeah. question of environment is so critical nowadays, especially um, as Jamal, Chef Jamal alluded to with the COVID situation. Like people now are working from home. Yes, of course, we're talking about seeking of sacred knowledge here. Um, that being sort of your purpose, your vocation, what you're seeking to achieve. Achieve. And people, in terms of what they're seeking to achieve with their jobs and professions, are now having to balance that with their home life. And it's it's having an impact on everyone. Like even, you know, ourselves, myself working from home, I know that if I don't have my routine of getting up, getting ready in the morning, getting dressed, driving to work, thinking about that, getting into the mindset, then you're just not yeah. nearly as productive. And I guess the same kind of thing would apply to the seeking of knowledge as well. Yeah, and to add to that as well, like I was running a um, advanced Arabic course on Saturdays in our 
uh, madrasa. And we were half, well, not halfway through, I think COVID uh, lockdown started end of June or mid-July. So we were one and a half terms through our content. Um, it was advanced Arabic, so that, you know, students were finding it difficult. We were trying to go slow. And then, you know, we thought, okay, let's just take a break. We'll wait till the restrictions are over. You know, four weeks passed, eight weeks passed. Then I'm like, all right, no, we can't miss that much. So I messaged all the students and I told them, okay, you know, let's do it on Microsoft Teams. Let's do it on Zoom. And all of the reply were the same. They said, no, we'd rather wait and come back in class and study because we won't be able to understand a difficult topic because all of these students are um, foreign to the Arabic language. So they were not content in studying advanced Arabic grammar online. So we waited, waited. It's been four months. We're almost at the end of the year. So now we're going to restart, you know, our course at the beginning of next year. Yeah. Uh, brothers, I'll be back in Shabal. Just a moment. Not a problem. No worries. Not a problem. Um, uh, while he's gone, Sheikh Ikram, maybe we can ask you a little bit about um, a more central question. You know, we talk about the Dana Alim course. I want to try and get a little bit more conceptual. So the, to the concept of Alim. Yeah. Um, I I want you to, if you can maybe give our viewers a bit of an understanding of how is the concept of ilm understood in Islam, like according to the Quran, the Sunnah, the understanding that Sahaba and the ulama have in general, um, because and 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 just to lay the sort of backdrop of where this question is coming from, it's essentially um, there is an idea out there that you should try and just amass as much knowledge as you can. You know, yeah. become a hafiz of the Quran and memorize, you know, as many hadith as you can, which is a, obviously very virtuous and no one can take anything away from that. I think that's an inherent part of our tradition. Um, yeah. But then there's this other question around, well, you know, memorization versus understanding and, and hikmah and like application and all that sort of stuff. So can you maybe give us some, shed some light on ilm and how it should be understood? Yeah. Um, I guess there's two parts um, to your question. Um, I, I guess the first one is just about ilm in general, but the second one is more relevant to an alim. Um, and obviously, they're, they're, both of them aren't the same thing. Yes. Um, I think gen, ilm in general is defined as a science or, you know, we, we say knowledge. Um, and anything, a fact or anything that's acquired can be called uh, knowledge or ilm. But Islamically, I suppose, when you look up the definitions, um, you know, you find numerous scholars, they're giving their own definitions of ilm, anything that, you know, takes a person closer towards um, the ma'rifah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so forth. Um, yep. And, you know, in regards to ilm in the Quran, you'll find multiple ayat, you know, like for the famous uh, dua that we all know, Rabbi Zidni Ilma, you know, the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his beloved sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to make this dua. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases him in knowledge. Um, or even the uh, ayah in Surah Mujadala where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises or, in, or or rather he explains the virtues of those people of ilm. And so mm. forth. But I think it's it's very difficult to find a definition of ilm from the Quran, although the Quran uses ilm in various contexts. But in regards to an alim, um, I think there are certain criteria where a person needs to follow a meet in or meet in um, in becoming an alim or a scholar. And traditionally, I suppose when we look at madaris, when we look at universities, and you look at the subjects which are taught, you'll see that they are very, very similar. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I studied in a traditional madrasa in Melbourne. Uh, where most of the teachers were from the subcontinent, the books were predominantly taught in the subcontinent, and I also studied in a university 
and I felt that the subjects are almost identical. And these subjects, you know, include Nahu Arabic grammar, you've got Ilm al-Sarf, morphology, you've got Aqeedah, you've got Fiqh and Usul Fiqh, you've got Hadith and Usul Hadith, you've got Tafsir and Usul Tafsir and so forth. And these are all taught in Madaris all around the world and they're also taught in universities. And the reason for that is because these subjects, these topics are essential for a scholar to have. Now, if a person picks up a few books and read it, yes, he has attained a certain degree of knowledge, but is he an alim? Um, you know, th that's where um, the question is. So I, I don't think there's a line where you can draw and say, look, you know, if a person reads these books, completes this, he becomes an alim. I think it's more about the requirements that a person needs to fulfill. And these are the absolute basics which are taught all around the world. And I suppose you can take that as a guideline um, for a person to be called an alim or a scholar. Okay. Uh, Sheikh Jamal, your take on that? Um, we're just trying to talk about the balance between how in some circles sometimes ilm becomes mis maybe understood as or misunderstood to just be amassing knowledge. I'm um, trying to balance that off with the idea of is there something more than that that should be called, you know, ilm or alim should aspire to something more than uh, amassing knowledge. You know, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, th there are statements from the Salaf uh, mentioning in the Mala'ilm al-Khashiyah that knowledge is only, you know, it's almost entirely... Uh, having fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, um, and this is based on the verse, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ um, That uh, it is those who have knowledge who have true fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So um, uh, uh, unlike other uh, sciences and unlike in other fields where it's just a matter, it's an um, academic pursuit, um, it's, it's really about having those uh, very spiritual um, outcomes uh, connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, through whatever is being taught and, and studied um, and reforming oneself, uh, reforming oneself, uh, having tazkiyah, uh, reforming one's adab, reforming uh, one's uh, conduct with others. You know, unfortunately, there are instances where a person may, uh, you know, um, develop so much knowledge, but then, you know, be uh, not very embodying of that knowledge uh, in the way they interact with others. And, and this yeah. is what turns people away from Islam. And, and you know, there are so many stories uh, of, that, of that nature where uh, people are, you know, having doubts because of mistreatment, because of uh, religious abuse, uh, as, is, as is referred to, you know. Um, so um, it's, it's really important to correctly represent uh, the prophetic legacy uh, that is handed down to, um, uh, to people of knowledge. Yeah, look, um, I think... There was someone who mentioned a really nice analogy um, with regards to, and I think it, it applies here, where they said that, well, not all doctors are healthy, right? The implication being that doctors may have a lot of knowledge about medicine, what makes you healthy, so on and so forth, but that doesn't necessarily lead to them impacting that knowledge on themselves. Whilst I guess what you're saying, Sheikh Jamal, is that it's effectively a prerequisite of that knowledge, you're possessing that knowledge and being recognized to possess that knowledge, that it has that transformative impact, that it must actually impact you. Otherwise, you're not achieving the purpose in gaining that knowledge and nor is that knowledge then actually benefiting yourself or others. So I guess that's um, a, an important part uh, of these considerations. But I just wanted to ask you one question specifically, um, which was what hurdles did you face? So you went abroad. What were some of the hurdles that you faced um, in your studies abroad? Because it's a very different environment, especially when, as you mentioned, you know, pre presumably born here, raised here, grew up here, 
you know, a wheat, wheat bix kid probably, right? Something like that. Vegemite and all of it. Oh, not Vegemite, no, absolutely not. Not Vegemite? Come on. What kind of, that's that's, that's unAustralian. No, no, no. He's on the Sarat and Mustafim that one. <laughs> um, but how was it shifting from that to Medina University and uprooting sort of the, the lifestyle and everything? What, what, what was that like? What were the hurdles that you faced? Yeah. So, alhamdulillah, I mean, it was really three years um, that I spent uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, but um, I think, you know, if we take this from the very beginning, uh, I mean, to get into Medina in the first place, you have to be of a very narrow demographic. You have to be male, first of all, and uh, you have to be no more than 25 years old at the, at the time of application. So oh. that automatic, automatically eliminates so many people who would like to seek knowledge. Uh, uh, my mom can tell you all about it, you know, uh, you know, Sheikha Um Jamal, you know, she always um, had a very uh, keen passion for seeking knowledge, but uh, due to her gender, was unable to um, uh, apply to many of these institutions yeah. uh, in Saudi and abroad, uh, other than Saudi. Um, so that that was one issue. But alhamdulillah, you know, I, I happened to qualify. Um, but despite qualifying, I mean, th- there was just no time frame on whether uh, and when one gets accepted. Um, you can't really plan around it. Uh, you're just waiting for a response to your application indefinitely, and you kind of have to... Um, uh, work casually or part-time without getting into anything full-time. Mm. Um, Just and, in that hope that it might yeah, come through. That's right. And, and um, I did some studies online. I, I did try uh, Medina International University, but um, I just figured that wasn't uh, for me. But alhamdulillah, after waiting for two years, um, I actually got to the point of giving up on uh, you know receiving any response from Saudi universities. Two and years. I actually so you started, waited for two years? Yeah, so, so I finished my psychology honours uh, in 2014. Um, and then 2015, 2016, you know, I was sort of... Um, you know, just was that really like a limbo yeah. period where you actually didn't commit to anything? You were just sort of waiting and hoping. Yeah. So, so twenty fifteen was my gap year. Like I just, um, I, I wasn't ready to start yeah. into anything uh, after the after the honors. Like it, it was a pretty intense honors in twenty fourteen, um, and then uh, that sort of dragged into twenty sixteen, um, and then uh, beginning of twenty seventeen. I'm like, well, actually, towards the end of twenty sixteen, I'm, I'm like, that's it. You know, I'm not waiting for this anymore, and um, mm. I'm moving on with, with my life. Um, and uh, subhanAllah, just as I started my uh, Master's of Speech Pathology, I decided to take up Speech Pathology at that yeah. time. Um, you know, I, I was receiving in, uh, messages in my inbox from brothers, congratulations, you made it, you're on the list. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God, you know, like, um, you know, subhanAllah. Just so they knew blue. before you did? Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, students in Medina at the time. Ah, um, so, okay. you know, they, they were following this thing. Um, so that's when, you know, I turned things around and, um, yeah, uh, alhamdulillah, I, I, uh, decided to take that very critical step of studying overseas. Uh, that was, I began my studies, um, uh, in 2017, alhamdulillah. Um, so, so that's, that's one issue, you know, so, you know, just the lack of time frame and, and the time that it requires, uh, the unpredictability. That, that really tests someone's determination to yeah. get there and to do it because yeah. to be asked to just hang on and wait is stuff. It, uh, not to be crude or anything, but it sounds like a difficult marriage story. Like, you know, if someone's waiting to yeah. get married, just told, look, hang on and wait indefinitely, it's difficult yeah. for someone to operate in that situation. Yeah, and at that point I'm like, you know, um, it doesn't have to be uh, a full-time uh, study of the dinner or, or just do it on the side or just study, um, you know, filthy texts on the side, mm. you know, in, in a sort of, lower grade uh, manner. So that's, that's one part of the, uh, the challenge. Um, and then when going to, so once you've already been accepted and uh, studying studies in Saudi, um, 
you do really have to consider your finances. Um, you know, you have to think about how you will support yourself after graduation if you do graduate. Um, hmm. and, and that's, in fact, you know, the main reason that I'm doing my Master's of Teaching at the moment. Um, uh, it's so that, inshallah, I'm not financially dependent on my dawah and that uh, I can keep my voice as independent as possible. Um, so, um, that's, that's one thing I'm, I'm doing at the moment. Um, and another massive hurdle is just uh, around family and marriage. Um, it's very difficult for any students uh, to bring their families um, to Medina. Um, mm. I think that even applies to other universities. Um, the, the rules are very rigid and, you know, uh, the university administration would keep changing those rules, almost like the COVID restrictions here. <laughs> um, uh, many brothers could be present when their wives gave birth uh, here in Australia um, wow. uh, and they'll only see their newborn children uh, in photos and videos on WhatsApp. Um, and that's, in fact, one of the main reasons why uh, many students, many Aussie students, unfortunately, um, you know, even though they're studying in Medina, uh, end up discontinuing uh, because, you know, they, they get to this very dark uh, space where they, they just can't continue. And, you know, it's just very um, mentally and um, emotionally draining. Um, and and I, I guess that, that's understandable. It's not sort of yeah. something that you'd sort of suggest that is a weakness of character. I and mean, it's... It's a perfectly understandable reason. Right? If someone wants to have a family, get married, whatever it might be, then you know they have to consider that alongside everything else of their ambitions. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So for, for me personally, I think you know the, the hardest thing probably was just the homesickness. Um, you know, I remember you know uh, while in Medina, just fantasizing about being back in Australia um, at the beach. <laughs> uh, you know, Medina is very inland; it's desert. Uh, it's it's very dusty um, uh, and. The only the only air you can breathe is is just the hot desert air or the AC air. So um, you needed to catch a cab to Yamboa. <laughs> I, I mean, I did that at one point, alhamdulillah, with uh, other Australian students, alhamdulillah. The Red Sea. It's the uh, exception to the norm, I guess. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so you'd only really be consoled by the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That whosoever uh, remains patient on the difficulties and the uh, the harshness of of Medina. Uh, I would be uh, a witness or an intercessor for him on the day of judgment. You know, so Allah. that's that's something that would consider me. Uh, motivating. Yeah, while, while being in that in that uh, yeah. environment. Um, uh, and then, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so I suppose the, I was just gonna I was just gonna say that I suppose that brings to light a lot of um, like that that point that Ikram uh, Sheikh Ikram mentioned earlier about how it's a case to case that case by case basis because. Ikram, if I'm not mistaken, um, your experience in Malaysia was very different um, because you had your family there with you. And you know, friends so like, there as well. Yeah, friends and family, and obviously you had that support structure. So your journey in seeking knowledge there was like very different, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and you didn't have the homesickness at all, obviously. Half your home is there with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't as bad. I still had homesickness, um, but... In Melbourne, it was very, very difficult, you know, you know, being... So I guess you, know, you yeah. strangely experienced the difficulty whilst in the same country as opposed to when you went overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So there were I like multiple is, yeah. occasions. So Melbourne, it was more about homesickness for the first, you know, two, three years. Slowly Sorry, how to... young were you again um, when you went to Melbourne? 14. That's, that's really young for a young man to go 14 years old. And so it was a group, right? Correct yeah, three of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must yeah. have been – what were some of the difficulties that you found there? I think the most um, severe difficulty was homesickness, you know, mm. being brought up uh, at home pretty much 14 years of my life and all of a sudden 
going to a boarding school and there were literally just the five of us. There were three of us from Sydney, there's a couple of other boys, one from Melbourne, one from Brisbane. Um, and we were staying in the masjid and the Melbourne weather wasn't friendly either, you know. Um, and it, yes. it, it was really tough. It was a very, very difficult time. But I suppose after two years, it started getting easier, um, mm. started making more friends. You start enjoying it a bit more and as our studies got a bit more challenging it kind of took my mind away from home um and you're more focused on your studies yeah Yeah. um well i think one of the other thing that sort of intellectually it makes you focus like you're saying your focus become your studies become a bit more challenging um maybe even a little bit more interesting when you start becoming more invested in your studies so on that i want to maybe ask um what areas are like personal favorites for you guys you've you've spoken about nahu you've spoken about arabic generally obviously Both of you guys a, seem to have an affinity with arabic yeah <laughs> arabic language obviously i think that's a bit of a given you know like it's kind of like a starting point um but then also many of the different ulum of quran hadith and whatever else what's your favorite area and i'm going to leave arabic out of this because it's kind of yeah. like yeah. can't go with that um what would yeah. be a favorite personal, Sheikh Jamal, if you can start with so, us? So, I mean, I did, when I uh, was accepted at Medina, I mean, you're basically um, asked uh, to pick a particular specialization, and that would be the faculty that you study in. Um, mm-hmm. I chose uh, the Sharia faculty, which uh, focuses mostly on uh, fiqh and also in fiqh. Um, at the time, it wasn't really my preference. What, what are, uh, sorry, what are the other options? What are the what other options? Uh, there's also hadith and its sciences. Uh, there's also da'wah and history and uh, aqidah. They're sort of lumped uh, together in one faculty. Um, Lugha as well. Yeah, Lugha is another one. Yeah, um, uh, that, that's that's a faculty of its own. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt that was the most um, holistic option. Uh, where, I mean, you do get a bit of hadith, a bit of uh, sirah, a bit of uh, but. More so on the fiqh and the usul, which um, is really critical and, and, and pertinent to people's uh, realities. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a very, I'm very focused on practicality. Practical. Um, so, um, fiqh to a large extent does does have that, and um, uh, that's why I I chose that. Um, it's not that fiqh is my nece- necessarily the uh, be all and end all preference. Uh, it's mostly that it just needs more time. Um, so I think my focus really is just on developing a well-rounded, holistic um, uh, foundation in the sciences, um, mm. whether it be, yeah, the, the Lugha, because all of these are um, interlinked and you need them all together, uh, not one without the other. Um, mm. oh, yeah, let me put one. it like this. Since you're skirting around the question, <laughs> let, me, let me put it like this. If you had three more months in Medina, and, yeah. you know, parents are cool with her and everything else is all good to go. You got your tickets handed to you. Everything's ready to go. And you had one option in terms of all those subjects to study more of. Fiqh, yeah. usul al-fiqh. Um, let's chuck in Lugha if you want to say that as well. You've got Hadith. You've got Ulum al-Quran. Um, what would you choose? Oh, I haven't thought about that one. But I'm trying um, to corner him. Let him have his expansive answer. Yeah. <laughs> we won't tell the other subjects if you want. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'd still stick to my Attitude. position. Okay, it's, yeah. it's literally, you know, because like, I just feel like you know there'll, there'll be an imbalance if you just you know spend more time on one at the expense of the other. So, yeah, that's that's just my outlook, really. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, but well, yeah, anything. He's that, trying. He's trying to do adal. He's trying to do adal between them. That's it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be you know um, sort of uh, inclining to one side kind of thing. Um, yeah, so um, I think yeah, anything geared to the practical side of things. I mean, that's just my 
inclination generally, just just whatever's practical, whatever's beneficial to my reality that that I can impart to others. Um, mm. it, it tends to be filth, but uh, it's not limited to that. Yeah. Yeah, Sheikh Ekran. Yeah. Um, look. Because I majored in Quran and Sunnah, uh, we had other options like Usul al-Din, comparative religion, you had Lugha, um, we had Fiqh and Usul Fiqh, and the fourth one was Quran and Sunnah. So I chose Quran and Sunnah, and obviously, you know, one of my favorite subjects um, derived from there, and it was definitely in Usul Hadith. Uh, and, and the reason for that was primarily because what I studied in Melbourne, yes, no doubt, was amazing, uh, but in Malaysia, the amount of topics we found in just the hadith part of our course was just amazing. You know, you have Jarh al-Ta'adil, you have Takhrij al-Hadith and so forth. You know, I think there's about 33 um, points yeah. that we had to cover. It's about 13 subjects or 14 subjects of just hadith. And what I found fascinating was when you start studying it in detail, the amount of um, effort there has been put by the muhaddithin of the past in each hadith and as we're growing up you know as students as well the students of knowledge we have so many um, differences of opinion within us what even while we're studying um, and that could be either because of our personal backgrounds and so forth and we would just go to each other and say nah 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 that you know that hadith is weak or that hadith is fabricated and whatnot and yes no doubt there are so many weaker hadith but then again you know when you study hadith in detail you come to know how much um, effort the muhaddithin have put um, to an extent where you're studying every single you know narrator in each chain of narration now one muhaddith criticizes him while the other one is saying that no he is an adil he is babith he is hafid and so forth and it, it we started exploring multiple ahadith we started exploring um so many avenues and even the assignments that we did on these topics was just amazing and we come to know that you know it's not just as easy as someone saying that, you know, this isn't correct because this hadith is weak and whatnot. So, um, and, and that's what the message I give to a lot of my students as well, uh, particularly those that, um, you know, want to study deen um, and hadith, uh, Quran and Sunnah. It's about understanding how important it is and the different, you know, options we have uh, in studying hadith as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I didn't skirt around the. Um, I think, I, think I do have a response actually to the question. I think it would be usul, um, uh, but but not just. The thing is, um, you know, when you study a text like Herodot and which I did study, um, you end up with so many theoretical discussions. Uh, you know, usually, you know, uh, and Sunnah responding to the Martezila, like because the Martezila would have their own, uh, you know, um, theoretical justifications for the arguments and stuff. Basically, yeah. So, so there would be a lot of back and forth. You know. Um, uh, sort of objections and rebuttals, uh, a lot of back and forth on that. Um, so that would sort of uh, take away from a focus on the practical, beneficial, or, you know, the, the uh, applicable side of Osul. Um, and um, I think, yeah, if, if I had three months left in Medina, I think what I would uh, like to attend is classes on how to how the Osul relates to the furor, you know, so, so linking mm. the specific uh, furor, you know, so... Fiqh, specific uh, fiqh rulings and, and how the usul link to that. I think that's, uh, yeah. um, so you know, just I, tying the Quran usul together yeah. is, is the best. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just yeah. get our tech guy to rename Sheikh Jamal as usul al-fiqh and we'll get uh, <laughs> rename Ikram as ulum al-hadith, please. <laughs> um, so my question to you guys is, okay, so we've explored your journeys and your sort of, your your engagement with knowledge, you know, in various areas of context and times and so forth. Um, I guess, do you think 
it's necessary, like necessary, absolutely necessary for someone to go overseas to gain sort of sufficient mastery over, um, not even mastery necessarily, but to be suitably qualified in the sort of sense of being able to assist the community in a knowledge capacity, do they need to go overseas? Or can someone, if they're driven enough and motivated enough, can they do it purely from where they are? Let's say, let's even just assume Sydney, Australia. Um, okay, unless Ikram uh, is happy to... No, no, go, go, Chef. Okay. Um, I would argue that, you know, it's possible to do it online uh, because, I mean, even when I go overseas, I mean, really, my experience, my main experience of seeking knowledge was sitting in a classroom, uh, listening to a chef uh, explaining concepts, you know, so th there's just the in-person attendance uh, versus an online experience. Um, so I think what it comes down to really is, um, you know, a formal... Uh, or completing a formal degree um, in Islamic studies, uh, whether it be in person or online. Um, so it's not about you know the medium as much as it is about the the program that's that's uh, being undertaken. Um, you know, uh, and there's different online and you know, there's, there's just you know um, uh, sometimes you know it's just an online study of a particular matin uh, and a uh, particular text, uh, and you're going to need jazz for that. You know that that doesn't compare to a four year degree, a robust long-term yeah. uh, study. So I think, yeah, we need to talk more about uh, the program of study rather than um, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, the medium. Yeah. Mm. And I, I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah, so to answer your question, you know, you don't, you yeah, don't yeah, that's, need to physically yeah. go overseas. You know, people go physically overseas and they just don't have the commitment, you know, that they sit in class um, and they don't have uh, the commitment to study to, um, you know, prepare decent notes uh, and, you know, prepare for assessments, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not just, I think, you know, really what makes a student of knowledge is their uh, self-determination. You know, that's, that's actually more important. embodying that student, being that student. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so one's self-determination and the effort they put in and commitment, you know, um, I think, you know, uh, overalls any, um, anything lost through, you know, the, the, yeah. the medium through which the tuition is delivered. Yeah. Um, just quickly, very quickly, um, the, the institution in Melbourne that you studied at, is that still operating? Is that still going? So can someone, say, go there and do the entire course, let's say, you know, starting soon if they wanted to do that? Look, it is still going, but back then when I started, it was open to everyone. Um, and they have a separate idara for women. So it's in the same complex, but it's a completely separate, um, it's separated off. Uh, but at that time, it was open to everyone. But now I believe um, they've changed that completely and they only take students at a specific age and year. So I think if you're going into year eight, you can join. And what they do is they teach you the six-year Sharia course, but at the same time, they um, go through year eight, year nine, year 10. Um, they do their VCE over there. Year so I guess for someone in Melbourne, they can actually take that as... Uh, a genuine option if they were to seek Yeah, that absolutely. But based on that, there's uh, more Madaris in Melbourne that are following exactly the same curriculum. Um, in fact, these are the graduates from the same madrasa. They've gone and opened up um, in various locations and they've opened up to the public in general. So you can attend, um, you know, irrespective of your age, you can join um, the course. And it's, uh, I think they have four and six C courses as well. And do we have that in Sydney? Um, Anything like that? Uh, 
Look, as far as I know, I don't think there's any boarding facility in a full six-year Sharia course. Mm. Um, I, I may be wrong. Maybe there is one open now. I think um, was it Al Bayani Institute. Someone was telling me. One of my students was telling me that they do have a full um, Sharia course there. I'm not too sure exactly the timing mm. and curriculum and so forth. But there's nothing established from what mm. I know, like Melbourne, here in Sydney at this stage. Mm. I see. I see. Um. We might move on to another couple of issues I wanted to explore. Uh, we mentioned usul al-fiqh earlier, um, and I just wanted to get your take on it. I've heard, um, I, I've read, and I've heard in the past um, books, like for example, um, there is a book um, which I'm forgetting the title for now. It was it basically addresses. Uh, it's one of those earlier books we used to find commonly in bookstores in the late 90s on the importance of following madhabs and stuff. Anyway, in the introduction to that, the forward to that, it says that two of the most important subjects are Arabic and usul al-fiqh. Arabic is an obvious one. For me at the time, I thought, why would you pick usul al-fiqh out of all the various, um, you know, doors that you could have to, to the sacred knowledge? Why pinpoint usul al-fiqh? And I have heard that many times since as well. What would you guys say... Um, regarding that like how important is a sort of fiqh in modern society for people to learn to understand to implement to differentiate between the different principles learned and so forth uh sheikh jamal if you can start us off yeah um it's absolutely critical because um, hey, sorry sheikh um maybe just a quick like 50 words or less for our viewers yeah. and listeners what is a sort of fiqh? all right yes um so i think uh to define it um i would refer to uh, the definition of Provided by Imam Bilawi, rahimahullah, uh, who said, "Ma'rifatu dala'il al-fiqh ijmalan wa kafiyat al-istifadat minha wa hal al-mustafid." That it's um, the knowledge or the science of, uh, you know, exploring the sources of evidence uh, or the sources of, of legislation uh, within fiqh, uh, the means or the or the tools that are used um, to interpret those sources, and hal uh, al-mustafid, which uh, refers to uh, the person that's eligible or qualified um, to actually uh, undertake the task of interpreting. So in other words, that's, that's mujtahid. And within, within that, um, that topic, you know, there is uh, exploration of the topic of taqlid and, you know, what yeah, kind of taqlid yeah. is, is valid and so forth. So that's, okay. that's the definition. Uh, that's what sort of fiqh covers. Yeah. Um, and to answer your question, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely central to, the topic of interpretation. Uh, we have the texts, we have the nusus of the Quran and Sunnah. Um, and, you know, we mentioned Lugha, you know, so, so the, the Quran and Sunnah are revealed uh, or transmitted to us in Arabic. So you need to have some uh, understanding of the language. And then there's also the human mind which interacts with these uh, texts. So, um, you know, there's a huge role for interpretation uh, within uh, the whole process of coming to specific rulings um, and it's either you take a an unprincipled approach to interpretation and end up with modernist and revisionist um, yeah. uh, interpretations of these texts yeah. or uh, you have a principled and, and, uh, and structured Divided approach, approach. Yeah. that follows a very specific you know principled uh, methodology um, to that that's consistent um, so, with the orthodoxy of Islamic jurisprudence absolutely yeah so um yeah, in this day and age, uh, it's really what protects the Sharia uh, against misinterpretation, against revisionism and modernism. Um, and uh, it also um, ensures that uh, 
you know, we are, we are approaching the Sharia collectively. You know, we're not looking at an isolated hadith um, and coming to uh, conclusions based on that one hadith without looking at uh, conflicting hadith or without looking at, you know, the general and the specific within the, yeah. uh, within the hadith or with other hadith, without looking at, um, you know, the nasikh and the mansukh, for example, you know, um, what if the hadith is abrogated? Uh, what if there's a hadith that came afterwards that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, spoke of? What if um, a Sahabi, the Sahabi who narrated the hadith uh, happened to act contrary to the hadith? You know, mm-hmm. and then that's an, that's an issue that comes up uh, in fiqh. You know, so um, uh, absolutely, you know, like you know, follow the Quran and Sunnah, um, and you know, uh, raise the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but do it properly. You know, do, do it with a correct understanding, with a correct and principled approach. Um, yep. uh, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we can talk about, you know, the hermeneutical principles within um, also, you know, like, for example, you know, uh, some of the um, topics covered, you know, if the Prophet Sallallahu does or says something, you know, does it necessarily follow that it's obligatory for, for us to follow that? Or is there a possibility of it being recommended or simply permissible? You know, mm. that comes with, you know, looking at the, um, uh, the context in which you said it and so forth. Um, and, and also, if he doesn't say something, if he, if he leaves something out within a particular context, uh, does that suggest a particular ruling for us? Does, does that have certain implications uh, for legislation? Um, and uh, also, so, so, so like you were saying earlier, sorry, sorry to cut you, just from that point of um, practicalities, I suppose, you know, when you were saying that you like the idea of having a very holistic foundation to the deen. Yeah. So that's not only coming from the the fiqh point of view, but also the usul al fiqh, because it's addressing the practical, I suppose, tension mm. of inter- interpretation um, and the problems that that can come about. Because I of can that. see why this is your favourite one. You chose to do your three month course on this. <laughs> the passion's <laughs> coming through now. Yes, Ikram, yeah. would you like to add something to that in terms of um, the importance of usul al fiqh? Um, yeah, look, I think Sheikh um, summarized that beautifully. And obviously, he's um, studied usul fiqh um, in detail. I chose Quran and Sunnah. So I only touched upon it, uh, particularly in my um, course in Melbourne, where we didn't get into too much detail. But I think when we look at it practically, um, considering probably 10, 15 years ago, the way people would come and ask a sheikh a masala, you know, sheikh, can I do this in my salah? And the sheikh would be like, yes or no. And that was it. And they were content with the answer and they would move on. But nowadays when people come and ask you, it's not just merely yes and no. They would, you know, go beyond and say, look, you know, according to which madhab and what's the yeah. deal for this, you know. But but that scholar is saying that, this scholar is saying this. So people are, and, and that's actually a good thing because people are familiarizing themselves with the deen, the increasing yeah. their knowledge. Um, yeah. And, you know, one example that I just want to add on to that, um, you know, that comes to mind and it kind of alludes to the importance of usul fiqh is, um, you know, when it comes to amr and nahi, you know, just the very basics of um, command and negative imperatives. Um, in Surah Al-Jum'ah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya that, oh, you who believe whenever the call is made um, for salah on, on Friday, on Jum'ah, the verb fas'aw is used. Now, those that understand Arabic, you'll know that this is a, an, a commanding verb, which means, you know, hasten towards the remembrance of Allah. Now, does this verb, does this commanding verb um, incline towards wujub? Is it compulsory? Does it incline towards, um, you know, istihbab or is it sunnah? 
when you look at the very next ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the same verb, um, in, not, not the same verb, but a similar form of the verb, when, you know, salah is finished, you know, go about your business and seek from the uh, bounties of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The same form of the verb is used in two simultaneous verses. However, in the first verse, first how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that this command inclines towards wujub, that it's compulsory. You must yeah. leave whatever you're doing, you must go and attend Friday, Friday prayer no matter what you're doing. Whereas in the next immediate you know, verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses a similar form of the verb. However, does this mean that you know, you must, as soon as Salah is finished, you must go and seek the bounty of Allah. No, this is on a sehbab, you know, it's optional. You can... You have to come to the Facebook marketplace straight away. Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just one example, yeah. Even with Nahi, you've got, you know, stuff which is haram, you've got things which are makru, you've got things which are disliked and so forth. Um, and, and there are numerous examples that, you know, come, come to mind when it comes to these. But I think, yeah, absolutely, as Chef was mentioning, Usul Fiqh is something which is very important. But... Equally important to study it from a sheikh, no doubt. Mm. Um, you know, you don't want to pick up any uh, book of usul fiqh. You know, you pick up al-Wajiz fi usul fiqh and you start reading it, even though you know very good Arabic or any other usul fiqh book, and you're like, all right, yep, this all makes sense to me because 90% of the time it won't. So it's very important. It, it is a very important topic, but equally as important to learn it from a sheikh. Yeah, and I think you know the goal isn't obviously to um, be able to apply. You know, make your own ijtihad, um, you know, oh, by learning or sort of yeah. But yeah. the point is to appreciate the rich legacy that um, the scholars of Islam, may Allah have mercy on them all, left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it helps build nuance to one's interpretation of the din and, and approach to the din. It's not black and white. Um, of course, you know, there are black and white. There's, there's areas of ijma' and there's areas of um, uh, deviance. But in between, you know, uh, especially when we're talking about the, the furor, we're, talk, we're talking about, you know, fiqh opinions, uh, there is so much uh, room and, and flexibility. Um, so, um, you know, just having that tolerance uh, for uh, contrary opinions to, that, to, to the ones that a person is uh, adopting. Um, and, um, yeah, just recognizing... Uh, what's acceptable and, and what's not and, and what, what kind of differences of opinion are valid and what are not, you know, so yeah. um, just uh, having a rich and, and, and nuanced perspective on things. Uh, and I guess it really, they, um, it deepens yeah. very thoroughly that appreciation for the fiqh. So yeah. if you come across an issue and it's halal, haram, mubah, whatever recommended, then if you have some awareness of usul al-fiqh, you understand that, okay, they didn't just pluck an ayah and hadith and conclude. They looked at the, yeah. the, the totality of the evidences and then came right. up with, even if something's just permissible, mubah, like oh no, eating an apple, that's not just because they oh yeah, well, eating an apple seems okay, so let's do it. They actually would have to look at everything and realize that, okay, this particular thing falls into this category, which means it attracts this particular ruling because of so-and-so principles. Yeah. And so then you realize that every aspect of the din and its fiqh and its rulings is incredibly deep and its roots are embedded within those sacred texts. Yeah. And, and, and this that's also ties into, you know, we, Allah like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has completed the din, mm. but we know for a fact that the texts that have been uh, provided to us, whether it's through the Quran and all the Sunnah, they do not address every single issue in our lives. So, um, you know, you absolutely need uh, for a, for PS to have a role. Uh, so inductive yeah. reasoning, uh, there's, a, there's a very crucial role for inductive reasoning and uh, I think there's a quote by uh, Ibn Taymiyyah where he mentions that the um, the nusuls are limited whereas you know the uh, the particular issues one is exposed to are limitless and, and that's where 
the role for Qiyas comes, you know, and I think uh, Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah, he argues against the Zahiriyah on this point uh, for very extensively um, in one of his books, which I do not recall right now. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where the appreciation for Usul um, uh, comes, you know, re- realizing that, you know, um, it's a means to appreciating the completion of the din uh, and the fact that it's capable of, that the din is capable of addressing whatever um, novel uh, yep. circumstances or, or issues may arise. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And we should have complete confidence in that as well. Yeah. Allah has not left us without that. It's all there. We just need to look. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask maybe a second last question and we'll end with just lessons, like a, a, maybe yep. a gem that you can share with us from your studies or lessons that you've learned. stuff. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about the status of ulama. Um, we have this beautiful, not one, it comes in many narrations, uh, a hadith which used the phrase warathatul anbiya, that the, the ulama are inheritors of the prophets. And subhanAllah, like many things in the deen, it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of shuruh written about it. So one of them that I'm aware of is um, I was reading earlier about Ibn Rajab al Hanbali. He wrote actually an entire treatise just on this aspect called Warathatul uh, Anbiya, Sharh Hadith Ibn Darda. So this it's, it's got a whole explanation of it. And for me, it's just if we take a step back from the details of it, just that phrase itself that Rasulullah is referring to ulama as being the inheritors of the prophets. It seems to have that dual meaning of like one of the maqam that is given, the status that's given to ulama, and I suppose how you should review them, but then also the responsibility angle. Could you perhaps shed some light on that? Um, Sheikh Ikram, we'll start with you with this one. Yeah, look, that's a beautiful hadith. Um, you know, and as students of knowledge, we kind of, Uh, begin with that hadith um, and you know one of the most important aspects of it when you start seeking um, your journey in knowledge they teach you the adab the etiquettes of knowledge and as you mentioned about the responsibilities that come with it it's not just about you know finishing your course becoming an alim start preaching but it's you know it goes well before that when when you start teaching um, you you, sorry when you start seeking knowledge it's about the adab and the akhlaq so that by the time you finish, you understand the responsibility and uh, not just the responsibility, but the reward that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared. Um, and as Sheikh was mentioning the ayah earlier, this ayah in itself, I think, is sufficient for people to understand the importance of, um, you know, knowledge in general, but um, Islamic knowledge and a person who becomes an alim. But you'll find multiple verses in the Quran. You know, the one I mentioned earlier in Surah Mujadala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise the level, the darajat of a person um, who's given knowledge. Um, you know, another ayah that comes to mind, you know, are those people who have knowledge and those that don't have knowledge are the same. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in various places in the Quran and then we find, you know, numerous ahadith that talk about the importance of talabul ilm, you know, the famous hadith that whoever chooses a path, man ilman, that, you know, he chooses a path in which he seeks knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sahalallahu lahu tariqun ilal jannah. You know, what more greater reward can there be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make the path to jannah easy for this person? You know, subhanAllah, just for a person who goes out, seeks knowledge. And we're not even talking about a person who's become an alim who's gone and studied abroad for 10, 15 years. You know, you step out, you seek the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and already Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is 
making the path to Jannah easy for you. And I think the continuation of the hadith itself is self-explanatory where Rasulullah wasallam. I can't recall the exact wordings of the hadith, but he says that, you know, we do not um, inherit or any dinar or dirham, any wealth, but the only thing that we inherit is ilm. And that's why the ulama are the inheritors of knowledge. Um, before we uh, jump to the final question that Sufyan alluded to, just very quickly, I'm just curious to know, um, in the respective courses that uh, you both did, was there any sort of particular effort to instill this mindset? Like, was there perhaps a unit or some element of study or some instruction to just solidify and make very clear the both the status as well as the responsibility that comes through the seeking of this knowledge and completion of these courses? Shaq Jamal? Um I don't, I don't see how it's a, you know, a unit in and of itself. You know, I think it's, it's just something that you pick up, you know, mm. while studying hadith, while studying uh, fiqh and so forth. Um, you know, it's just from the general adab, you know, you know, just understanding. But, but I think within usul, you know, when we talk about ijtihad, you know, um, we understand, you know, the limits of ijtihad, the, the conditions, the qualifications required uh, for ijtihad. Um, so that discussion does happen uh, towards the end of um, uh, the chapters on ijtihad. Um, that's that's there absolutely yeah, yeah. Yeah. all right um we can uh Sufyan, well, you were mentioning a, a question that you wanted to wrap up with i think we've only got time for that remaining yeah. we are running out of time a little bit um but yeah last question and this can be either a lesson that you learned throughout your course and you know learning is, is it's ongoing so it's not like you know it's come to an end or anything like that but nonetheless you had this beautiful opportunity presented by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you, inshallah, reaped many benefits from it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala counter on your scales Amen. on the last day when it matters the most. Um, but from that journey that was had, a lesson that, you know, the others who didn't embark on that journey can benefit from who are listening. I know there are people in our audience right now who specifically um, are listening into this because they are looking forward to an opportunity like this in the future. So maybe a message to them or a lesson that you learn or a gem that you can share with us because of your uh, journeys, inshallah. Um, Sheikh Jamal, if we can start with you. Um, I think one one thing I really learned from my experience uh, in Medina was just the sheer amount of privilege we have uh, living in the West. Um, and, uh, you know, despite whatever discrimination and Islamophobia we may be exposed to, um, I think, uh, you know, a lot other Muslims, our brothers and sisters overseas have it so much harder. Um, yeah. You know, in a way, Medina was a cross-section of the present-day Muslim world. Mm -hmm. um, I would witness... You know, very, you know, very visible student poverty on campus. Uh, you know, the students there who live on campus uh, with me were mostly um, <clears throat> of African and Asian countries or, or backgrounds. Um, you know, the university would provide this um, monthly stipend of uh, um, 850 rials, uh, which comes to about $300 uh, per month. And um, for some people, you know, that, that was just livelihood. You know, um, they would send some of that money overseas to their families Wow. Um, back home, and uh, they will try to top it up with a further 150 rials provided by some of the charity organisations there. Um, so, so and not, they would queue, literally queue up, uh, just to receive what's equivalent to fifty dollars. You know, that's that's something yeah. you know um, that that would, was experienced, uh, uh, you know, among students um, in Medina, subhanAllah. And um, I actually. I actually uh, shared a room with uh, some Sudanese students and um, I would actually be very self-conscious of showing any signs of affluence. I mean, even if it's like, you know, spending $50 on a, um, 
a, a meal outside. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. um, I just hang out with friends and uh, we'd share a, a meal at a restaurant. But then, you know, I just feel uncomfortable about showing anything because for, for them, of course, you know, the, ex- the exchange rate uh, is, is makes a huge lower. difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and the Australian dollar is, is so much uh, stronger. And, and for me, um, whatever monthly uh, uh, stipend was provided, you know, that's just extra cash really for, for most of us Western students. Um, I'd also, um, you know, You'd also see Syrian refugees, um, Syrian orphans, perhaps um, on the streets, you know, begging. Uh, you'd see uh, Uyghur and Rohingya brothers uh, who can't go back to their countries, who were overstaying their visas, worried about deportation back to China or Burma. Um, you know, sometimes I know. I remember uh, getting in the car with an, a Uyghur brother, and he was telling me about how his dad told him not to go back to, to China. You know, just telling him don't come back home. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd witness these things firsthand. Um, I'd also get questions uh, often about how to get the Australian citizenship, um, opportunities for work in Australia, uh, learning English and so forth. So, you know, when brothers, you know, here in Sydney complain about, um, you know, uh, curfews and, and, you know, discrimination, I mean, yes, okay, there are problems that need to be addressed, but, you know, please put it in perspective, you know, don't don't make it like, um, you know, uh, you're, you're under some major oppression uh, like what your brothers overseas um, are enduring. So um, I think, you know, having that overseas experience really put things in, into perspective for myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Alhamdulillah. And uh, yourself, Sheikh Ikram? Um, yeah, look, it's two words, sabar and tawakkal ala Allah. Honestly, these, um, this is what probably got me through my journey in Melbourne and Malaysia. Um, you know, a lot of my students that have graduated with me have completed the Hibd. In fact, one I was discussing with you a few weeks ago, Hamza, um, he yeah. wants to go to um, Medina University and another few that you've taught in Western Grammar School, they've asked me about going to, you know, Melbourne, they've asked me about going overseas, but they're scared, you know, obviously the financial perspective, um, you know, it, it is difficult. There's no doubt it's difficult. You know, some of them are young, they want to get married and go, but then, you know, they have that dilemma, how are we going to support ourselves, how we're going to support our wife, um, and so forth. So one of the most important things is, firstly, as I was mentioning about Sabah, is to be patient. You know, if you do um, decide to go overseas or even interstate, um, or even if you're studying at home, honestly, there will be times where you find what you're doing very difficult. There will be times where you just want to give up. But the most important thing is to be patient and have yeah. firm faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to know, like, even at times, I, I was halfway through uh, my course in Melbourne and I was going to drop out. I just thought I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and it wasn't just about homesickness. It was really tough. And at that time, I was studying uh, Mantik. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things were just going over my head and we started getting really deep in. But, you know, with the support of my parents, my teachers, um, even colleagues, it was more about, you know, let's get through this year, push towards the end. Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it much easier. Um, so it's really important, you know, if you are taking this journey of uh, seeking sacred knowledge wherever you are in the world, I think it's very important to stay patient and put firm faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakallah khair. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, if I may add something else which is more related to seeking knowledge itself, um, I think it's not waiting for your iman to be boosted, not waiting for that, you know, sheikh to come and boost your iman and not to wait for... Um, a certain set of circumstances to arise that would enable you to seek knowledge. Um, I think you should be proactive about it. Uh, mm. You know, the, you've got the internet, if you've got an internet connection, then, and you've got a laptop and a desk, you know, you can, you know, seek knowledge straight away, but just, just have a um, structure, um, maybe seek some advice on, 
you know, first look at your interests and abilities, you know, within your interests and abilities, you know, um, uh, and your goals, you know, uh, figure out what you want to achieve um, and how you want to go about it. And, and then go ahead, you know, the material is out there, you know, in this internet age, I don't think anyone uh, is incapable uh, of seeking knowledge. And I don't think anyone should be Medina-centric or Al-Azhar-centric about their knowledge. You know, don't, you know, um, make it the be-all and end-all. You know, there's, if it's just about the knowledge, then uh, the internet is before you. That's what yeah. I'd say. So you've got everything at your disposal. It's about how you make use of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there's always um, courses uh, that are held with scholars overseas. So um, I'd often get uh, invitations from brothers uh, over here um, to attend maybe explanations of certain texts and, and you know basically brothers would uh, gather together um you know whatsapp group agree on a particular time with a scholar overseas and and that scholar would uh explain a certain text so you know reach out to students of knowledge and i think networking is really important reach out to people who are committed to um seeking knowledge uh, locally and um you know uh, seek out opportunities to learn from scholars overseas you know everything is done over the internet it doesn't have to be you know watching youtube uh, it can be live sessions with scholars so you know that's that's um as close to in-person experience as possible yeah, yeah. 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 um so i think we're going to basically get um, some networking going with sheikh jamal and uh, ikram inshallah we'll talk to you about those usul al-fiqh classes that you're going to offer for us <laughs> Wrong person. Shayukh, barakallahu feekum for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. And your time leading up to tonight and putting up with us with the exchanges back and forth and the technicalities of it all. We very much do appreciate um, uh, the time, especially, you know, where everyone, especially yourselves, are, are running on tight schedules and stuff. So thank you again. Jazakumullah khairan. May Allah reward you immensely for your time. Thank you very much. Um, we, we had some specific people that did ask for this podcast, so we hope that you uh, benefited and you enjoyed, um, inshallah, and you learned a lot tonight. Um, if you have any further questions, um, I'm sure our host will be willing to take them, so you can put them up on our page, and we're happy to forward them on to our guests, and they can, inshallah, answer them as well. Um, and otherwise, inshallah, we'll leave it there. For- yeah. Um- Concluding remarks, as is almost obligatory in this day and age. Uh, If you did find some benefit in today's session, then uh, please be aware that we do run every fortnight, Mondays, 7.30. Please check us out on Facebook if you haven't already. Well, I'm assuming if you're watching this, you are on Facebook, so like. um, But ask others, share it around, inshallah. Um, There's a lot that we can learn from these esteemed guests of ours and the others who we've had in the past and inshallah we'll have in the future. Um, it's a, a medium that we seek to get out into the community for the community's benefit. Um, so please do share, spread it far and wide, you know, let others know, inshallah, and hopefully we can spread some goodness. Inshallah. And with that, we'll end it for tonight. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.